This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. So open your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. We are continuing today... In our Advent series, as we're focusing on great texts about the incarnation of Christ, the work of Christ, and we see one of those texts in the fourth chapter of Galatians, and really what Paul is talking about here is what it means to be a child of God. What it means to be a child of God. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. So if you'll find that text in your copy of God's Word, and let's look at it together. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this precious text that tells us about our identity in Christ as your sons and daughters. And the implications of that are staggering when we really understand them. We pray that you would help us to understand them like never before today. And so we pray that you would give us the ability to concentrate on your word and to listen to your spirit now as you speak through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kurt Flood was an outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals in the 1950s and 60s. He was really part of that first wave of black players in the major leagues, right after the Jackie Robinson years. And he faced his share of racism in the major leagues, but more so when he was still in the minor leagues. And Kurt Flood tells about an incident that happened one day in between the two games of a, a doubleheader, it was the custom for the team to send the uniforms out in between the two games to be laundered. And so the clubhouse attendant came and he got every other player's uniform and sent it to a nearby laundromat to be cleaned. But Flood, as the only black player on the team, the attendant took a long stick so he didn't touch his clothes, took the stick and took them to a black laundromat that was way across town. And so he was sitting there in his locker room, still in his underwear, while all of his teammates were back out on the field and warming up for the second game. And finally his uniform got back from the laundromat across town, and he went back out on the field, and there was just, just a, a chorus of the worst epithets and names that were just raining down on him. And years later, 
Kurt Flood, just reflecting back on that day, he said, you know, they called me everything but a child of God. Now, Kurt Flood was referring to something that's biblically and theologically true, and that is that every person is created in the image of God. And therefore, every life is precious, and every life is worthy of dignity and respect, just because it's, we're cre- all created in God's image. But when the Bible talks about being a child of God, it's talking about something that's even deeper than that. And when we really understand it, it's absolutely life-changing. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson uh, says this. He, he says, uh, reflecting on, on what this means, the notion that we are children of God, His own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. So we're talking about that mainspring today in Galatians 4. So what do we see in verses 1 through 7? Well, it breaks down basically into two parts, before Christ and after Christ. First of all, before Christ, our condition under the law. And when Paul talks about the law here, he's not talking about the law of the state. He's talking about God's law, God's perfect standard. What was our condition before Christ came when we were still under the law? Well, he says in verses 1 and 2, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's giving an illustration that his first century readers would have understood immediately, but it requires some explaining for us. In the first century world, the Greco-Roman world, a child who was an heir, a son of a, a wealthy family, even though he was an heir, he was treated like a slave until the age of about 14. He was under these these guardians. And so uh, even though he was an heir, really, until 14, he was essentially treated more like a slave. And what Paul is saying here is that before Christ came, when we were under the law, there was a sense in which we were, we were enslaved. And the reason is because we had God's perfect standard. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's law. But none of us met God's law or even came close to it because of our sin nature. So we had this standard that we were obligated to meet, but we couldn't meet it. And so in that sense, we were, we were uh, in, in, enslaved, really, by, by our, our own sin. This past week um, was the anniversary of the first flight, and I happened to, to see this. This is the, the original telegram that Orville Wright sent to uh, the Wright brothers' dad back in Ohio after that great day. And so you can see the telegram is dated December 17th, it's 1903, um, and sent from Kitty Hawk uh, via Norfolk. And, and the first word of the telegram is success. It had finally happened. Flight. But I'll tell you what is not going to happen. 
No matter, if we, no matter how hard we try to flap our arms, we're not going to fly. doesn't matter how, how, how much effort we put forward. We can flap our, our arms all we want. We are not going to be able to fly with, our, with our, our natural arms. It's just not going to happen. And what is also not going to happen is that we are not going to be able to, 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 to reach God's perfect law, God's perfect standard of righteousness. And so, before Christ came, when we were under law, there was a sense of, of enslavement in that we had this obligation to meet, and because of our sin, we could not meet it. And then in verse 3, Paul says that, that we were also enslaved to something else. He says, in the same way also, when we were children... We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, scholars debate about exactly what he's talking about when he says the elementary principles of the world. I think that what Paul is talking about here are the the forces of this world that enslave us, and, and demonic powers lie behind them. He's talking about things like lust, uh, things like a craving for power. It's talking about uh, addictions of various kinds, greed, on and on. All of these, these powers that people get enslaved to in our world, and of course dark demonic forces are behind all of these things. And so he's saying here that we were, we were enslaved by those things as well. But now in Christ, if you are in Christ You are no longer a slave. Because of the work of Christ and His death for our sins on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, we are no longer slaves to sin or to the dark powers that lie behind sin. And this is what Paul uh, talks about in the sixth chapter of Romans when he says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You see the parallel. Christ was brought from death to life. Those of us who are in Christ have been brought from death to life. And therefore we can present our members, the members of our body, to God as instruments for righteousness. And then he says in verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you as a follower of Jesus since you are not under law, but under grace. And so, in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. This is exactly what the, the Christian artist Trip Lee is talking about in his song, Robot, as he says to Satan, I'm not your robot, I'm not a clone, you're not my puppeteer, and I'm not a drone. In other words, once we were, we were puppets on Satan's string, under his domination, no longer, no longer, we have been released from that. But our condition under the law 
was enslavement to sin and to the dark powers that lie behind sin. That was our condition under the law. Good news. God acted. That's the second part of this text. Let's look at what God has done. What has God done? First of all, God sent His Son. Verses 4 and 5. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, Paul says here, first of all, that God sent Christ when the fullness of time had come. There's mystery about exactly what he's talking about, but probably what he's referring to is that it was the perfect time. And in the the mind of God, it was the perfect time to send his son. Conditions in the Greco-Roman world into which Jesus was born were different than they had been for centuries prior to that. There was a common language, Greek. Most people throughout that world spoke Greek at that point. It made communication of the gospel so much easier. In addition to that, roads had been built so that travel was easier than it had ever been before in human history. Now, what did did all of that tend to help make possible? The spread of the gospel. And so God knew that it was the perfect time for the first advent of Christ... Now think about this. At the first advent, the world was more connected than it had ever been. You had this common language, you know, you had better roads, things like that. The world was a more connected place than it had ever been. Think about today. Think about just what has happened, you know, in the last 15 or 20 years with the Internet. Think about how people throughout the world are more connected today. The possibilities for the gospel, the the, the ease of traveling, of taking the gospel to different places that we have, and the gospel is spreading more rapidly than it ever has before. Could it be that God is setting the stage for the second advent of Christ? You know, it's a tantalizing thought. But Christ came in His first advent, to do what? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law. Now, the word redeem referred to the fact that someone could purchase a slave's freedom. If someone was a slave in the first century, someone could pay off the owner of the slave and purchase that slave's freedom. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus paid off the law for us. Why? Because He perfectly fulfilled all the obligations of the law. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. He met all of the obligations of God's law in our place. That's what theologians refer to as the active obedience of Christ. You um, might not recognize who this man is, but he's a man that you should know because he's impacted your life, whether you realize it or not. J. Gresham Machen was a, a, a theologian in the early part of the 20th century, and this man stood for the truth of God's Word. He stood for the truth of the Bible in the face of an onslaught against the Bible, 
And really, it was J. Gresham Machen's stand for God's word. He was valiant for God's truth. And, and really, it was his stand in the early part of the 20th century that laid the groundwork for the recovery of orthodoxy in our own denomination as Southern Baptists in the latter part of the 20th century. This man's impacted our church. We should know who he is. There's a beautiful story about Machen. And he died New Year's Day, 1937. He was on a preaching trip up in the Midwest, contracted pneumonia. And on his deathbed, Machen wired his colleague back at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And the last recorded words of J. Gresham Machen are these. He wrote to his friend, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He was right. There would be no hope without it. But, but, but because Jesus met all of the obligations of God's law in our place, because He obeyed perfectly in our place, there's hope. But He didn't just live the perfect life that we couldn't live. What else did Jesus do? Jesus died in our place. Because of our sin, our failure to obey God's law, we had, we had accrued this crushing sin debt on the cross Jesus paid off all of that sin debt that we could never pay. And that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 2 when he says, And you who were dead in, the, in, the, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by what? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Because of our failure to obey God's law, we had amassed this crushing sin debt that we could never pay, this, 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 this record of debt that was standing against us with its legal demands. But what happened? It was nailed to the cross when Jesus died in our place. Now Jesus did all this. He did all this so that what? Verse 5, again. He did it to redeem those who were under the law so that, purpose clause here at the end, why? Why did Jesus do it? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, <clears throat> Paul's moving to a second illustration. First illustration was about the managers, the guardians. Okay? Now he's moving to a second illustration to help us understand the work of Christ. And that illustration is adoption. In the first century, a wealthy man who was childless could adopt a slave. And in just a moment of time, he would cease to be a slave and become a son. With all of the rights and privileges that came with being the son of such a prominent father. We have an infinitely more prominent father that has adopted us as his sons and daughters. And see, this is the glory of salvation. Not only have we been released from slavery 
but we've been adopted as sons and daughters. It's not just that our sins have been forgiven, but we've been given this new status as sons and daughters of God and and all of the rights and privileges of, of the Son are ours because we are in Him. It's glorious. Tim Keller says this about it. He says, we get the transfer from us of our sins and the transfer to us of all the Son's rights and privileges. Christ not only removed the curse we deserved, but gives us the blessing He deserves. Is not the gospel of Jesus Christ a wonderful thing? He sent His Son. Second, Paul tells us here that He sent His Spirit. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now see, the work of the Son makes our adoption legal. Okay, and so Jesus has met all the obligations of the law in our place. He has... He has taken the punishment that we deserve for failing to meet it in our place. Okay? So lives a perfect life we could never live, dies in our place, and because of that, our adoption by the Father is perfectly just. You know, it's, it's perfectly legal. And so the Son secures the legality of our adoption. The Spirit secures the experience of our adoption. We've been formally adopted because of the work of the Son, but our adoption becomes experiential in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit works in our lives and, and assures us that we are indeed the children of God. Now, Paul here says that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word. The people that Paul is writing to here in Galatians were Greek speakers. But yet, he feels that this Aramaic word is so important that he retains it for this Greek-speaking audience. Well, what's, what's going on here? Abba was the word that Jesus used when addressing God. It was, it was a very tender, Jesus spoke Aramaic. And Abba was a very tender Aramaic word. It was a word that only a child would use in the context of, the, of family life to refer to their daddy, essentially. Um, but Jesus refers to God that way. Nobody had ever done that before. And Jesus called God his Abba. But not only that, Jesus teaches us to refer to God as our Father. When Jesus teaches us about prayer, and He gives us the Lord's Prayer, which is essentially, really, a a model prayer, how does He teach us to address God in Matthew 6? Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven. Now, It's really vital 
if we're going to understand the teaching of Jesus and much about His teaching about the Christian life, it's really vital that we get deep in our mind and heart that we, in Christ, are to relate to God as a loving Father. You really can't understand much of what Jesus says if you don't understand that. So, when Jesus teaches about worry later on in the same chapter in, in Matthew 6, when He teaches about worry, um, He bases all of that on the fact that we are children of God. God is our loving Heavenly Father. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. In other words, what are you worried about? If your Heavenly Father, who, who loves you with a perfect love, rules the world. I mean, what, anxiety, worry is really irrational. I mean, when we get that deep down in our system. When Jesus teaches us more about prayer in the very next chapter, in, in chapter 7, what kind of analogy does he use to teach us to pray? He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus is talking here to, you know, to parents, grandparents, whatever, and he's saying, you know, even we as, you know, human parents or grandparents, even though we're sinners, we still delight to give to our children, our grandchildren, don't we? I mean, we, we love that. We're going to experience the, the wonder of that this week. Um, if that's the case with us, you know, who are so flawed, how much more is it the case with your Father who has no sin, who has no flaws, who loves you with a perfect love? He wants you to understand when you pray that you have an incredibly generous Father who delights in giving to His children. We can't really get prayer, I mean, unless we understand that, the, that relationship that we have with God. When Jesus teaches about fear in the 10th chapter of Matthew, again, what kind of analogy does he use? He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, Jesus says if God is so sovereign that not even a little bird is going to fall to the ground apart from His sovereign will, how much more does your Father care for you as His child? And so you know, we really can't understand passages like this unless we understand that God is our Father, that we have been adopted as His children. And when we do understand that, and when we learn to relate to God that way and think of God that way, it changes everything. You know, Tim Keller is so on target when he says, for a child of God, there is confidence and boldness every day. We don't walk in fear of anyone or anything. Our Father owns the place. We must cry out to our Father spontaneously throughout the day. We must analyze and address the issues of everyday life by remembering His fatherly love. Now, I want you to focus on that sentence. 
We must analyze and address the issues of everyday life by remembering His fatherly love. So, when situations come up in your life, just everyday situations in your life, how are you going to think about God? First of all, are you going to cry out to God? You know, or are you going to take it in as fear or worry or tear yourself apart or whatever? Or are you going to take that situation to God? And when you take it to God, are you going to think of God as your loving Heavenly Father who rules this world? Because if you think of God that way and, and you, t- you think of, you address situations and you analyze situations in your life, that way changes everything. Keller says we need to learn to ask moment by moment, am I acting like a slave who is afraid of God or like a child who is assured of my Father's love? You see, a child should be able to count on some things in this world. A child should be able to count on the fact that their parent loves them and is there for them. Now, I say they should be able to count on that because you and I both know that there are millions of children who cannot count on those things. Unfortunately, we have a God who promises to be a father to the fatherless. John Fountain is a journalist. He was a former national correspondent for the New York Times. He works out of Chicago now. But a few years ago, NPR, National Public Radio, had a series called This I Believe. And it was various testimonies from people in different walks of of life, spiritual testimonies. And this was what John Fountain shared on that occasion. I believe in God. Not that cosmic, intangible spirit in the sky, but the God who embraced me when Daddy disappeared from our lives, from my life at age four, The night police led him down the stairs, away from our front door in handcuffs. The God who warmed me when we could see our breath inside our freezing apartment, when the gas was disconnected in the dead of another wind-whipped Chicago winter, and there was no food, little hope, and no hot water. The God who held my hand when I witnessed boys in my hood swallowed by the elements, by death and by hopelessness, who claimed me when I felt like no man's son amid the absence of any man to wrap his arms around me and tell me everything's going to be okay, to speak proudly of me, to call me his son. I believe in God, God the Father embodied in his son Jesus Christ, the God who allowed me to feel his presence, whether by the warmth that filled my belly like hot chocolate on a cold afternoon or that voice Whenever I found myself in the tempest of life's storms, telling me, even when I was told I was nothing, that I was something, that I was his, and that even amid the desertion of the man who gave me his name and DNA and little else, I might find in him sustenance. I believe in God, the God who I have come to know as Father, as Abba, Daddy. It wasn't until many years later standing over my father's grave for a conversation long overdue that my tears flowed. I told him about the man I had become. I told him about how much I wished he had been in my life. 
and I realized fully that in his absence I had found another, or that he, God the Father, God my Father, had found me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of the truth of this passage that in Christ we have become your sons and daughters, that we can experience the love of a Father who loves perfectly, who takes us as his own, a Father with all the love in the world and all the power in the world. We pray that these truths might sink deep into our lives and just change the way that we address everyday life. We pray that we will find ourselves in, just in, in the everyday situations of life as they arise, that our, our, our immediate reaction will be to, to call out to you and to understand that we are yours, that, that you, are, you have all the power and you have all the love for your children, and we pray that that would just change the way that we do life, the way that we look at challenges, the way that we look at every situation. Father, I pray for anyone here today who has not come into that relationship with you as their Father through the Son because that's the only way that we can enter that, that relationship. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I pray that they would look to the work of Christ today, His finished work, and turn to Him and trust Him and become a child of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've got questions about what it means to be in a relationship with God, we would love to talk with you more. We're going to be here at the front. Other pastors will. Pastor David will be here at the front. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to minister to you any way that we can uh, during this time of invitation or after our service. Uh, we'll be here. If you're here today and, and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, we would love for you to come. We'd love to, uh, to recognize you and, and welcome you as, as, uh, as you walk through uh, that process of becoming uh, a part of this wonderful faith family here. Let's stand together this morning as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.